Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week, we're once again kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock feeds. Often referred to as the Red Ruby Devons due to their rich red colour, the Devon breed of cattle hails from the west country of England, southwest England, just before you get to Cornwall, basically, for our uninitiated listeners. And I have on the call this week well-respected breeder and judge, Becky Hurd from Somerset. Hi, Becky. Hi, Andy. Thank you for asking me. Becky, the, the land down there would be, most people would would suggest that that southwest would be mainly low-lying and reasonably fertile ground, but I mean, some of that Dartmoor and Exmoor ground is, is actually as marginal as anywhere in the country, isn't it? Yes, it is very much so, and you've got your Devons are grazing on your medium loam, lowland ground, which is an absolute pleasure to farm, and you've also got them foraging their way through the gorse and brash up on Exmoor. Um, so they certainly cover any type of grazing quite with ease, really. Yes, a variable breed. And uh, and the breed is thought to be a combination of the Longifrons and the Urus. Um, going back to the mists of time, stories of cattle trading go back to the 1800s with France. But it was so thought that the Phoenicians, who came to the West Country probably for mining tin in the Bronze Age, brought the cattle with them as currency. So the, the Phoenicians were Greeks, I think, weren't they? And They'd be, what, 5,000 years ago? That's, that really gives you some bragging rights as one of the oldest breeds. <laughs> it does, it does. It puts some serious history into the breed. And, I mean, it was thought also some came over on the Mayflower um, as well. That's another tale that goes around. But they were really strong oxen-type cattle um, in the day. So they were used a lot for mining, um, for draying everything back um, from the quarries as well. Okay. And we, we'll go on to their prowess with, with um, Azoxen in a minute because there certainly is a history there. But I'm right in thinking they're a horned breed, uh, Becky, for our listener. They are horned. There is a smaller pool um, of polled genetics, um, which have obviously come through as well. But the majority, I would say, probably a good 85% of the breed are horned. Okay. And the breed became known as the Devon in the 1700s, presumably due to the high density that they are within that county, although uh, geographically I think they're much further widespread than, than, than the West Country. Yes, they are. There's herds up in Cumbria, um, smaller herds in Carlisle, right the way down to St Just in the bottom of Cornwall. Um, okay. So they are very widespread now. Okay. And they're also known, of course, as the North Devon, and that's uh, stopped them being confused with the South Devon, which, of course, is... Uh, is further south, and, and although we're not going to cover that one on this podcast, would the South Devon be a hybrid of the of the original North Devons, or the other way around? There's no real link um, in the original stories between the two breeds. It's just sort of from where from whence they've hailed, really, within the UK. I mean, obviously, the two breeds are extremely different to look at, mm. um, so we don't know that there is any original cross up there, but there could well be. You're most welcome to say that you're the better breed of the two because you, you're, you're on the podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite, Andy. <laughs> and, and the cows are medium size and, as you said, they excel well on, on grass systems and exceptionally fertile, easy carving, light birth weights, sort of 35 to 40 kilos. Uh, milkiness as well uh, is, is a big trait within the breed and uh, ensuring the calves uh, get a flying start from, from all that milk. And what sort of... Cow weights are we looking at, just again for our listener, they're not a big breed, are they? 
No, not at all. I would say a good average of 700 kilos, um, several within the breed would be the 600 kilo mark. I mean, we do have the larger end of the scale where you might, you know, there are some breeders which prefer to go on the larger side of medium, but we are very much and we sell ourselves as a medium sized cow. And, and the temptation hasn't been there to, to grow them into the larger frame animal in the same way that the Shorthorn and, and the Angus have done further north. You've still, the Devons have kept themselves to that medium size, have they? Well, within the 60s, when things were not looking overly healthy for the Devon, because she was as wide as she was tall, butchers didn't want to know, farmers didn't want to know. And there was a nucleus of breeders, which included our Hayward brothers, um, who did introduce some Solaire to just try and get a bit more size. But we were extremely small at that point. OK, we'll, t- we'll have a chat about the, that um, upgrading that we do on most of these podcasts because generally some, some blood gets brought in from elsewhere. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, in uh, the modern um, history of the Devon, they were classed as a dual-purpose breed and, and stalwarts remember... Devon's running through the milking parlours in the 70s and uh, we hear that again in a lot of breeds particularly when they've been regionalised like yours are and I, I could just see Colin Hutchins sitting on his milking stool there milking these I think it's, it's... <laughs> yeah they certainly were running through parlours and it obviously a butter fat and protein is going to be pretty impressive too I'm not quite sure about yield compared to your modern dairy cow but um <laughs> constituents would be excellent <laughs> but that does obviously cement what you said earlier on that they are a very milky breed and in the 18th and 19th centuries, as we mentioned just now, the, the breed was highly valued as a, as a ploughing ox and uh, they would work for five or six years before they were fattened off. And uh, But the, the, the Devon were famed for their swiftness in the harness of speeds up to six miles an hour. I mean, that's speed merchants. And I mean, that's shire <laughs> horse speed, isn't it? Uh, it is, but I think they've certainly slowed down over the years because if you can get a Devon to move, then you're doing well. <laughs> If that's them walking at six miles an hour, I'd hate to try and outrun one. That's all I can say. Oh, they're very, very stubborn now as a breed. It's, um, yeah, trying to get them through a crush is probably their main downfall. <laughs> but but a breed are good on temperament, though, aren't they? They, they? Again, be renowned as a docile as docile cattle, which is, I suppose, what you're saying. Incredibly docile. I mean, if anything, you just when you're doing the winter jobs, for example, you just cannot wait for them to get into that routine, say, of being shut back in the mornings to scrape because you just have to put your shoulder into every cow's back end. And <laughs> you're, like, begging her to move, but she'll just stand there chewing and looking at you. And... Uh... We said that the Devon cattle are renowned for adaptable foraging ability in a wide variety of situations, <laughs> calving regularly, producing progeny which thrive on minimum inputs, which is the desire, I suppose, of all of all breeds, and producing premium beef. So we'll look at the beef again in a second, but basically a, a low-input breed, quality output, you know, it's, it's a win-win, isn't it? Yeah, I think at the moment, particularly with when we're BPS sort of changing over to Elms, I think it's going to be really important to have these breeds of cattle that are low input and a top quality output. And I think perhaps your buyer is more aware now of perhaps buying a bit less meat, but buying better quality meat. And I think the Devon's certainly got a place moving forward, particularly with her foraging ability. And the bulls, of course, pass on that good genetics to their progeny, um, uh, which probably makes them adaptable to be using the Devon bull on some continental heifer, especially maybe his first carvers, I guess. Yeah, they definitely do um, serve a very good purpose for that. And also probably back in the day as a society, we didn't have the numbers to jump on to the Hereford and Angus type schemes. Um, but uh, there are a lot of dairy farmers that are using the Devon now um, on their young dairy heifers just to get that first calf also. 
on the dairy heifers as well, okay? And I'm going to quote the mission statement from your uh, the, the, the Devon's marketing website, which says, From suckler cow to terminal sires, pedigree breeding to crossbred, the Devon is versatile and reliable. Increased pressure on farming systems for low input, environmentally sustainable production sees the Devon pushed to the fore. And that about uh, pretty much sums them up, doesn't it? It does. You know what you're going to get with a Devon. You know, mm-hmm. There's nothing fancy. There's no nasty surprises. She is what she is. She's easily manageable. And she's yeah. a good old girl. <laughs> <laughs> and and because of that, they're, they're frequently referred to as the rent-paying breed. Yeah, they are. Back in the day, that's what a lot of the old boys used to refer to them as, as the rent-paying breed, particularly on these larger farms where you, they just had to get money in the bank. You know, it, they didn't have to shovel a load in the front end for it to be going up and hanging up in the butcher shop quickly. The purpose of obviously of quite a lot of, of the, the traditional breeds that we've been covering all sort of try and strive towards that. But it certainly mm. sounds like the Devon is suited to, to that area. Let's have a look now as we do at some of the early origins of the, the breed and some of these early pioneers. Um, and d- during the Napoleonic Wars when meat was scarce with inflated prices to, to such an extent that the butcher's trade endangered the, the breeding population and... and during this period, we have, uh, I think, one of your stalwarts is Francis Quartley of the Champs and the Herd, uh, yeah. which is now since farmed, of course, by the, the Dart family of William and Henry and Chris and, and Richard Dart there. And uh, that's probably preserved some of the early bloodlines for everybody, I think. Yeah, very much so. And over the years, the Dart brothers and their sons since have been very forward thinking in what they've done with the herd. And they've done a lot of crossing with the Blonde Aquitaine, well, British Blonde, rather. Um, And they really have bred some fantastic stock, just proving that as well as being one of the original homes for the breed, they're not frightened at looking forward. Mm-hmm. I certainly know Henry will come on to that again when uh, the days down in the Royal Smithfield show and the Devon cattle were always well well represented both in, in, the, in the show ring and the bar from what I remember. <laughs> and uh, the Devon Cattle Breeder Society was formed in 1884, so around about the time that everybody else was putting their herd books together, these guys would be at the same time. And you have the Davies Devon herd book, so I'm not quite sure who who Davy uh, was that was behind that. And uh, as, the, as that... Society herd book been maintained ever since? Yes, it was a gentleman called Tanner Davy um, from Rose Ash in Devon. And the yeah, the herd book has run ever since, printed on an annual basis. We still like to have it printed because it's nice, isn't it, to have a printed copy sat on the <laughs> shelf. Um, although it does take a rather a lot of room having every single one since they began at Whitefield. But yeah, it's just a really lovely thing to have. Sure. And what sort of numbers? I mean, if you've got the books in front of you, it's always a telltale sign for all breeds. You can see how thick the herd book was and then how thin it goes and then how thick it goes again. It's sort of a, almost a graph of, of, of the popularity of the breed. And what sort of numbers are we looking at to, today in the purebred uh, herd book? We'd be looking at around 750 registrations. In recent times, obviously, that's had a few moments where things have perhaps been a little bit more inflated when there was all the different um, grazing allowances financially wise that were given and people were encouraged to keep the Devon. Um, now, with some of those coming to an end, there's been a bit of a lapse until the next round begins oh. again. OK, one one of the subjects that we still get to cover on this native breed series is, is the Rare Breed Survival Trust, which, of course, is a fantastic institution. Did, did them, the Devons ever get that scarce that they were on, on the Rare Breed list? We got close. We really did get close. And in all honesty, if it wasn't for a small group of stalwarts such as the Dark Brothers and David Barker and Malcolm Hurd, then it really would have been in dire straits. We were very, very close. 
Good. Okay. Well, glad you're still there anyway. And uh, as I said, ter terrific work that they do to know that they were there to support the breeds that, that needed it at the time. And, and there would be society sales, I guess, early on. When would the first of those be and where, more to the point? There used to be an Exeter market um, back in the day um, and people used to just travel for miles, symbols on trains and all sorts. And it really was quite a sight to see some of the classes of perhaps up to 30 bulls that would have uh -huh. been there at the time. Would be a sight indeed. And uh, the late 19th century, mid 20th century saw a terrific um, export drive to South America, as of course a lot of other breeds were going there at the same time, and Australasia. And uh, But the Red Rubies came under pressure a little bit in the 70s, I suppose, with the rise of the supermarket and, and, uh, and, and the influx of the Continentals. Yeah, definitely. And that's when we had to adapt. And we some did choose to introduce the Solaire because something had to be done. And that's when our numbers were looking really scarce. I mean, I'll go through all of our really old pedigree certificates and just scrawled across all of them from the 70s is sold fat, sold fat. You know, we really cut back our numbers then as a breed because they just weren't wanted and something yeah. had to happen. Okay, let's have a look at some of the early animals that put a backbone into the breed to ones, more recently influential um, ones there. Um, you've sent me a list of, of one or two and, and a bull in the 1940s called Coombs Head Monarch, bred by King George himself, who uh, seems to have appeared in, uh, across many herds registering calves. And that would be King George VI, I guess, was it? Yes, it was. Yes, it very much so. And Monarch did appear across a very wide range of pedigrees for a long time as he was a bull breeding bull. Um, so, yeah, he did appear all over the place. And, and a few other um, bulls there that uh, that worth a mention, uh, Becky? It was Pryat and Universe, um, who was bred by Bill May at Pryat and Barton in Credit and in Devon, um, which the herd is now being farmed by his son, John, and his wife, Sue, now. Um, Universe was an extremely influential sire. He produced incredible weights at the time. Um, he won a lot of prizes um, and right across the 1970s, he was used massively. His name still appears within pedigrees, not that too many generations back still today. And again, in, when we look at these native breeds, there always is one bull that appears in all the pedigrees and it sounds like it is, it's him. And then another bull, Whitefield's Judge, was... Uh, the backbone of the majority of animals that went into the export drive, and that's your own herd, right, Whitefield? It is, yeah, yeah. Um, Judge did it. He, similarly to Universe, he appeared across a massive amount of herds at the time because the gene pool wasn't huge then. Because mm. obviously in the 70s, we were all cutting back. Um, but yeah, Judge was also sire of a lot of the animals that were like the first animals exported to Brazil and then on okay. to the rest of the other countries as well. Okay. So, uh, whether pure or crossbred, the Devon is famed for its uh, its tremendous beef, and um, finishes your top quality meat that we mentioned. And are there are there a few people selling pure beef or, or cross Devon beef? Is is there maybe a bit of interest from uh, wholesale outlets at all? It is all coming through, really. There's a gentleman called Peter May um, again from Canterbury in. Question, and he's got some seasonal sort of deals going on with Waitrose, and Peter does buy a lot of um, store cattle to finish and put forward. Um, there's another gentleman doing so in Dorset. Um, there are more sort of bigger butchers that are perhaps um, focusing on keeping Devons. Gentlemen to highlight would be Philip Warren um, in Cornwall, and he runs an incredible butchery establishment. And it's all Devon beef that he puts through there. And he's done a lot for the society. And are there outlets now online, as there are with these other ones, that people selling beef boxes and things? Or can anybody go Google and go on and buy themselves a box full of Devon beef if they need it? 
Yes, certainly. A quick Google and you'll come up with all sorts of Devon breeders. Who are, there's a lot of box beef happening now because people are recognising the quality. I mean, from Anna and Richard Dorrell um, in Worcester down to Richard and Laura Stanbury in Devon. Um, and then you've got the Colleton herd of Simon and Granny Phillips who have been doing box beef for quite some time with really massive success levels. They haven't got enough cattle to fulfil the orders. So on, on the finishing front, there are a lot of people, as you said, or a few people anyway, finishing... Um, Devon crosses out of out of Holsteins and uh, yeah, there'd be a fairly high conversion rate there and what sort of weights would be would be talking about? There's one chap who bought a lot of seven month old Devon crosses um from the Holstein herd. Um and on minimal cake, um, he was attaining an average age of kill at twenty two months and they were averaging three fifteen to three twenty kilos for okay. the steers. Um heifers were a wee bit around the two eight five mark. Um, but it also brought the heifers down to some of them finishing near 18 months. But they did have the right amount of finish. Okay. So we're always looking for a market, especially now there's a lot more uh, desire for um, dairy bred beef. I'm sure that's given the Devon breed another opening to the market. Um, it is, yeah, it is. I think we're just trying to look at the grass conversion traits, particularly within the Devon. You know, even if you're turning your, your crossbred young stock out for a while, the grass that they will take on board really will make a huge difference. You know, it, it's a massively strong trait within the breed. And some, again, something that's in this day, day of carbon footprints, of course, is something that we're, the whole world is very much turning their head towards um, grass-fed beef, especially on, on areas where grass is the only thing that can be grown, which maybe isn't quite the, the, the trait with some of, your, some of your better grassland down there. Um, and I always remember down at Smithfield that uh, they were some superb uh, carcass beasts, the Devons, and... Uh, you know, we'd, they'd bring some of them in the live and dead competitions and, and win their way through that as well. And as I said before, they were a great bunch of lads that used to come down with them. They were always, they were always up to mischief <laughs> of some sort. Is it, was that me before your day, Becky? Sadly, it was. I wish it wasn't. But I have heard all kinds of tales of dad's friends sticking each other in the cattle crush and giving them a quick ivermec um, <laughs> and so on of an evening at Smithfield. So. <laughs> what went on at Smithfield stayed at Smithfield, although bit by bit it's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard too many tales. I think they have to stay there. They can't come home with him. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with this you know, trait that the Devon has, are we seeing some Devon cross suckler cows now starting to get? Is that, is that a growing trend for people using a, a Devon, Devon cross heifers for a suckler cows? Yeah, very much so. I think it comes down to the two basics of she doesn't eat very much to maintain her body weight at all um, and the milk that she's able to produce off of a very minimal input. Mm-hmm. Sounds quite similar to a breed we were looking at last week called the Ling, of course, who, who would manage mm. to survive on just about fresh air, I think, and produce a calf. And that's obviously the trait that, uh, that everybody's looking for. And you mentioned and, uh, geographically they are spread around. Are there any in Scotland and Ireland? I mean, are, are, there, are there niche people breeding these things across the country like that? There are certainly several herds in Scotland and just on the border there at Carlisle. Um, I don't know of any in Ireland, but that's something we should look at. <laughs> you certainly should. It's, a, it's a, a great market and I'm sure they'd be well suited to, to some of the more marginal land of there down in the, in the south as well. Um, and Let's have a look at a few of these other early breeders that we were looking at and uh, we can't name them all, obviously. I know we mentioned the, the darts earlier on and... Uh, um, Ford Abbey was another herd that I recall being quite strong in the breed going back the way. And who else should we, would be mentioned amongst this, these few, Becky? 
Well, Lisa at Ford Abbey is an excellent choice to mention. Um, Lisa's been a real stalwart over the years and she's been very passionate about getting the UK Devon abroad as well and has been excellent at representing us at any congresses and meetings that have been going on abroad. So Lisa's just been fantastic. Um, I think another herd which is still going today, um, which is the Ethel Down herd, which is, was Pauline Barker, the late Pauline Barker and her father, Jack, um, which is then carried on by David um, and has now moved over to David's grandson, Freddie. Okay. Um, so it's lovely to see these herds going on through the generations because sure. obviously, as we know, it's great that there are all these herds back in the day, but it's that next generation, which mm. is difficult, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, the Brightly herd that um, of the Thomas and the Pouncey families um, down there at Umberley. Okay. Again, that one's gone through, you know, John um, had the herd and now it's gone through to his son-in-law and now it's to his grandson, Charles. Okay. Um, and they are buying a lot of store cattle um, and finishing as beef and selling on. So, yeah, they are doing extremely well down there with the breed also. Uh, and we mentioned earlier on, you mentioned uh, briefly Richard Dorrell. I remember him and his father being mm-hmm. being strong around about the Midlands. Uh, Dickie and I did quite a bit of work together showing cattle there and they're still in the breed, are they? Oh, very much so. The cattle which Richard and Anna are producing are absolutely out of this world. They're doing a fantastic job on the show circuit. And again, their boys are incredibly passionate about the Devon and it's just great to see. And I'm sure Dick would be absolutely delighted, as I'm sure he is. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if you do see Dickie uh, or you speak to Dickie, tell him I was asking for him. Let's just move on. Another another well-known name amongst the breed in that part of the world, of course, would be Colin Hutchins. Colin, I've seen Colin out with Devons. Would be, he be involved in the in the Red Devon? Yeah, Colin's uh, always at every single show. He's always got a, a team out, and I think he just lives and breathes it. Mm-hmm. Colin obviously is he's, he's well known for Angus and various things, but I certainly remember Devon was a, Devon was the breed he was out, and as you said, he's out at every show and life and soul of every party. And uh, yes, he certainly is. <laughs> we'll look forward to seeing him out, again out on the show circuit this year, and and a few other. Absolutely. More recent, I suppose, influential sires, just while we're going down this line, and you mentioned one to me called Thorndale Azirati, I think I've got that right, and uh, influential sire, and, and then you you touched on just now the fact that they brought in some of the Salur into this, and I believe he would probably be one of them that uh, that had quite a cross of, of uh, Salur blood in him. Yes, Thorndale Azirati, bred by Clive Thornton, um, who was a real stalwart of the Devon, wrote a wonderful book, um, and yes, Azarati has been used massively probably 10 years ago. And then there was a huge amount of his blood around, massively influential. And then people had to move away because there was so much about. And now there's just a little bit trickling back in now. Okay. Um, he breeds incredible tight, um, bigger cattle, um, but really stylish, really showy. But again, this celeb breeding bit is present in his pedigree and it isn't everyone's cup of tea sure sure and obviously he wouldn't be for all he wrote a book on the history of the breed as you said he wouldn't be a complete traditionalist if he was foresighted enough to to bring in this outside blood and and what 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 were the laws again we've touched on this in a few of our other um, breeds what were the laws and rules surrounding the amount of blood that could be brought in and did they go straight in the herd book or did they have to be supplementary registered or how did it work with this blood coming in it is a supplementary register. You've got your original cross, then you've got your your F1, your F2, and your full pedigree. So we go for um, okay. There's a separate supplementary section within the herd book. Okay. Um, and they have to be 85.5%. 
Eighty-five and a half percent. Okay, that's got that, yeah. that clear. I mean, that's that, that in in American terms, that would be doubly full pedigree because I think everything's pedigree after about fifty percent over there. But let's not <laughs> let's not upset all our American listeners as I do every day. Um, and, and and that would be that Salur blood would be brought into just a few forward-thinking herds, would it? Or would I suppose once everybody started using the, the, this bull, then that would be spreading it quite widely across the breed. Yeah, there was originally bulls like Cumbria Bruno, um, Van Kerr and Vizier were some of the most widely used Celere bulls. Um, as it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but those that saw that, you know, we perhaps needed to try an injection of something else and it did work. I mean, we only put it in one of our three cow families and that was back in the 70s. And you can still see that that particular cow family has got that drop of Solaire in her still just from the way she carries her head. And they've got that fluffier pole um, and they are they're really showy. Yeah, I can see that uh, being the early Solaires that came (laughs) out of France. uh, Some of them were renowned of a little bit of an attitude problem there. Is that uh, was that detrimental at all? Does that show? Some of them certainly were. And again, I think you just had to be careful and pick and choose what you used. I mean, we used Bruno and he was ever so quiet and just daft as a brush. But some of they did say that some of the V registered bulls were perhaps a bit quick. But I think where you've got the extreme docility of the Devon may have just mixed with some of the slightly more excitable Solaires, possibly, and just come to a very happy medium. Yeah, excellent. You could bury that down amongst the docility of the rest of the breed. Yeah, I hear that. And uh, that probably brings us around to yourself, uh, Becky. You're currently, as I mentioned earlier on, the Whitefield Herd in partnership. It goes back a long way, I think. Just talk us a little bit through um, um, your your herd and your family. The herd was originally established um, by a James Haywood um, in a place called Chubworthy and it's near Wivelliscombe. It then moved to another village called Milverton to a place called Love Lynch where the herd was taken over by James's sons William and Arthur. Um, William and Arthur then moved to Whitefield um, and they were at Bridgewater Show and they were a pair of old bachelor brothers. They had no help at all and needed some assistance, really, with the breaking mainly because they were getting a bit older and they didn't have the time to do it all. And as we know, that does take a fair drop of time. Um, my dad was there showing a Guernsey for his dad. Um, big pig breeders and Guernsey show people, my dad's family. And Bert and Arthur just went over and offered dad a job. Okay. So he used to hop on his scooter in Langport and zoom down to Wivelliscombe, just mainly to help with the braking at the start. And then he just, over time, became completely obsessed. Okay. That's a great thought of him jumping on his scooter and going down there to, to feed the animals. And, <laughs> and, and he eventually worked, well, eventually came into the, the herd himself in, in, by way of a partnership, I think. Yeah, at the time, the herd was 20 cows. Um, They had already had one dispersal um, before Dad sort of came along. Uh, Well, I said dispersal, it's more like a massive reduction. Um, In 1965, Dad joined the Hayward brothers at the farm. um, And over that time, a lot of things changed. And sadly, in 1981, Arthur passed away, which is when Bert offered Dad the partnership, which then obviously established Hayward and Heard. And and the land down there where you farm then... uh mainly permanent pasture would it would it be would it be could it be some arable land or is it just purely grassland 
we're a hundred percent permanent pasture. We're incredibly lucky with what we've got. We're a county wildlife site um, due to our, we've got all sorts of rare moths and orchids and things that okay. people get excited about. Um, <laughs> so we can't touch the ground, which to be honest with the Devon suits fine. I mean, she's got a very steady gut and I'm not sure that ripping up and replacing with 100% new pasture would suit this foraging breed anyway. Okay. You know, we've got loads of clovers and just real rich old pasture and she just seems to thrive on it. I mean, a lot of pasture is ripped up and turned over because of the parasites. So would, would, again, would the breed be fairly resistant to, to parasitics? Yeah, massively, massively. That is a, a huge part of, of their you know plus sides is that they are massively resistant to parasites hugely okay and you'd sell what six to eight bulls a year i think i saw and uh, you know and then fatten the rest i suppose what sort of numbers numbers we're looking at well we run 40 cows um it's just been a bit of a gradual build-up really dad was left with five cows um when bert passed away because again they had a sale and the herd went up to kelso uh, in scotland and established the Fairnington herd up there Um, so when I sort of came home from college um, and we were running around 25 cows so we've built up to 40 which is where it ought to stay really it's what we can comfortably house comfortably graze Um, it's just a happy figure for us Um, and then yeah we do do around sort of six to eight bulls they've got a couple of dairy farmers that will come and buy a pair um, at time um, but mostly going into obviously pedigree herds um, and if we wouldn't use it ourselves we don't keep it you know you can't when you're selling bulls everything is down to your reputation and you've just got to keep the best that's a great um, mantra i wish a lot more pedigree breeders would would, would, would would take take heed you pedigree breeders out there because becky said <laughs> it if you wouldn't use it yourself then you wouldn't want to sell it <laughs> Well, no, just because it's got the right equipment, it doesn't make it a bull. Um, I'm massively passionate about just because it's got balls, it's not a bull. You know, there's a lot of other things. Like the the main pointer for me is Bert and Arthur always used to say, your bull should stand out amongst your cows Mm. 100%. You should never have to look for a bull. Okay. Um, Again, wise words, wise words. And what sort of age would you sell bulls at? And where would would you sell your pedigree bulls? Well, previously, people haven't really wanted to know until about 18 months within the breed, but now they're wanting them younger and younger. Okay. Um, we do have a bull inspection team, um, which do go around and score all Devon bulls, just trying to bring the rest up to the quality of the best, mm. if you see what I mean. Um, and now we're able to have them inspected at 12 months because people are just that little bit keener to get their hands on them sooner um we used to rely 100 percent on taking bulls to the show and sale um, which are at sedgemore um spring and autumn but now we're getting to the stage personally that we haven't got any bulls left by the bull sale time <laughs> so they're all going from home which yeah. is fantastic well it's great because obviously it cheapens the job i mean i'm going to sterling bull sales tomorrow and a lot of people will tell you that they don't have bulls there because they've sold them all at home at you know five or six months ago and i mean the difference in that is 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 in the thousands isn't it and uh, with regards to feeding and, and bringing them out and entries and all the rest of that so it's a perfectly acceptable way of selling the animals if, if you've got that market for sending them younger definitely and my motto also is that it could break its leg tomorrow <laughs> so if somebody comes home and offers you something sensible then i think you've always got to take it 
You only sell them once, don't you? And uh, mm. the, the, your animals there, I think you said you've got them in individual pens with a concrete run. Sounds quite professional, uh, uh, the bulls that you've got at home. Oh, it's very old school, Andy. It's very old school. The bull, the bull pens we've got are old cob um, pens, which have had... I, I don't know how many bulls have been through those bull pens, but a lot. Um, they do. They used to just have their pen um, back when Bert and Arthur were doing it, but we put the concrete runs on, so yeah, it's just better for their feet, isn't it? We haven't had a foot trimmer at Whitefield in my living memory, really? and that's hand okay. on heart. Okay. So we are, yeah, we're just very aware that just going out on that bit of concrete just really helps the job with the toes as well. You really are selling this breed if you've not had a foot trimmer in, the, in, in all those no. years. Then uh, another, another great asset. We haven't. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah okay. Nice. And yourself, uh, Becky, you're on the judging panel of the society now and have done for a while, I think, and judged. You always seem to be judging somewhere. I don't know if you're ever at home or you. <laughs> Just dust me off and drag me out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really enjoy it, to be honest. I think um, it's a real honour to be asked. So it's I would never like to say no to a judging position being offered because it's an absolute honour that somebody thinks that you're good enough to do it and that people will pay their money, take their time to go and be judged by you. Mm. I think that is a massive honour. I got to do the bull sale this year, and that was the first time I'd done a bull sale, and that was just like the absolute goal for me within judging and it was an absolutely fantastic day it's not just a goal it's a judging a bull sale of course is a massive challenge because the the money goes where the mouth is i mean if you if you put a unless you're going to go and buy the champion yourself when you start putting an animal up to champion and it and it doesn't make top price then you're under the inspection light don't you you are and i think i started really quite young i was 18 when i went on the full panel and back then and you were a girl and there were a lot of people that did look at you twice and think, oh, I'm not sure about this. Um, and you have got something to prove. And I think so long as you can always back up what you do and what you say is you believe in it, then you it's up to you how you place things. As long as you can back it up and there's a pattern to what you're doing. I don't think anyone should ever be nervous. You've just got to go with what you genuinely think. <laughs> Wise words again. You don't just have the engine running there around the corner ready to run off as soon as, the, as, soon as you handed the ticket set. <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide, Becky. They'll know, they'll, they'll know where to find you. And, and just moving away from the cattle a little bit, you keep a few Zwarples as well. And for our American listener, wouldn't have a clue what a Zwarple was, but it's uh, it's a tall <laughs> it's a tall black sheep with a with a white blaze that's uh, comes from Switzerland. Would I be right? They are a milking sheep, yes, from over there, and they are just tall, dark, and gorgeous. Really, um, they just milk. They are a milking breed, and they just they will milk the equivalent to a Holstein cow. Um, they'll have three lambs, four lambs, feed them all, no bother at all. Um, I think I just fell in love with them at a show. My parents had. Paul Dorset used many years ago and physically dad couldn't handle them anymore so they went and he always said there'll never be another sheep at Whitefield <laughs> so off I went to sale in 2007 told me I could buy two came home with five and now I think I've just lambed 104 wow. to date so um these things just get slightly out of hand don't they but I think I just wanted the sheep because when I was that age the Devons were Malcolm's they were Malcolm Herds and I was like trotting along behind as his daughter and I just wanted to have something that was my own at that stage. Sure. And you've been very successful with them, I think, uh, Becky? I haven't done an awful lot of showing lately, but I used to 
do a lot of shows and yes I, I was very lucky um I now cross several at home with the pole dorset and I've been concentrating on the fat lamb because although she's a, a gorgeous sheep she's big and she eats and I think I'm just trying to find a way to show people that she is the most fantastic mother milks like crazy but if you could just introduce something like the pole dorset, then she just gets fatter a lot quicker. You've got a slightly bigger carcass and happy days. Excellent. And the dorset, of course, are, are a tremendous breed in their own right. And something that I hope we might uh, profile on this uh, podcast one of the days. And as well as the Zorpals, of course, another breed you've been involved in is the Blue Domains, a breed that, uh, that I myself was involved in many years ago. Yes, I do work for the Blue Domain Society um, as their breed promotional slash development role. Um, Jane Smith, who is just the most fantastic lady, has been the secretary for a very long time. And I think just wanted a little bit of it removed from her daily chores. Um, so Jane still does the, the membership side and the account side. And yeah, we've just seen a massive leap in the interest in the Blue Domain in the last couple of years. And it's just been a true testament to our breeders for standing by the breed and just being so good at what they do mm. excellent well again if you speak to jane teller i was asking for her because she was you know long involved in the in an nsa sale and various other things as well and uh, jane's always yeah. been around always been around the sheep breeding as you said she's very organized and uh, very successful as what she does and i believe you've been on the council of the devons the council is regionalized what i say you've got sort of different council members in in two or three counties or, or are you national well, we we do split actually the seats into the southwest counties um, and then sort of any other because obviously although we have breeders all across the UK, okay. we are generalised in the southwest. So yes, it is um, split into areas and yeah, meet um, four to six times a year um, and yeah, just try to get stuff done. But as you know, with all breed societies, it can take a little bit of time to get to Don't get me started on the politics of breed societies, <laughs> that's for sure. It's always a debate and something we normally have to curb to bite our lip on. The, uh, but you've been on the council three or four times now and chaired some of the committees within the breed and, and, and hold some office. Yeah, it's a three-year stint at a time and then you have to have a year off. Um, so I'm just standing for my, I believe, fourth term now um again it's a real honor to stand i was very young when i first went on mm. um and to be charged with being part of the decision making process is huge and i take it extremely seriously yeah, it's an, an honor for you i know i sat, I've sat on committees when i was 17 and 18 and as you said i was a boy you're a girl it's it's for them to take you seriously some <laughs> of the older guard there it is it's, it's quite a quite a battle so good for you if you've done if you've done four terms that puts you on the 10 12 years within the breed Oh my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> and just talk about about numbers then. I mean, you've you've, you've certainly sold the, the Devon breed to myself and I think to our listeners. And is are we seeing, as we have with other native breeds, um, are we seeing an increase in, in, in interest into these native breeds, maybe from hobby farmers and, and such like? You know, why, why, are the numbers going up and, and why should people be buying Devons in a quick sentence. They are, they are, Andy. From you know, you've got your guys coming in who just want five or six cows, which is great. And a lot of the time, these guys are buying the best genetics because perhaps they're in a position to be able to. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go through to there's a lot of younger people coming in great. who are trying to run bigger herds. Mm -hmm. um, and I say bigger, I think 
the average herd size wouldn't be very large and we would count probably 40 cows as a large herd okay. um but there are more of those bobbing up and for guys like that we need to be finding that definite outlet mm. you know it's not good enough just selling them as stores we need to have somebody on board Sure. Yeah, and that's, that sounds like that's a quest that you might be tasked with after this after this podcast. But uh, <laughs> if, if if and when you make it back onto your fourth term as on the on the council, <laughs> okay. And you say there's people coming in into the breed, and some of that might be you know financially they might be fairly easy to breed to buy into. Becky, what sort of money are we looking at? What what, what breed records? What sort of money would people be needing to to spend on the best sort of female genetics? I think to be able to come in and have a really good start, I think you would be very sensible to be looking at buying the best of the maiden heifers, say for two and a half, three grand okay. for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, to buy a really good bull, you'd probably be looking at five or six grand. Okay. Um, so we're not a ridiculous breed by any means. I think we're fairly steady in everything we do. And as we say, it's the rent paying breed. Sure. You know, nothing's going to cost you a fortune, but you're going to get a good solid output because those inputs aren't there in the first place. And, and certainly for the, the, some people go into, into breeding for all reasons. And I mean, I, I, I'm into a few uh, native breed sheep just now. People can get into a breed like that and know that they're well represented across the countryside and it's not going to cost them a fortune to get in and, and get passionate about. So uh, hopefully this podcast might help encourage a few youngsters to turn up at the sales. And where would, we be, where would we be going if I wanted to buy myself some of the best genetics? Would I have to phone around the breeders and turn up on the farm or, or, or are there sales that they can, they can go to? Well, shows and sales in the spring and the autumn at Sedgemoor, okay. um, where we really do get some of the real stalwart breed breeders are there with their best you know that is our showcase is our show and sale um you can always if you're looking to establish some numbers people have always got their stars at home as well of course but if you're looking to go and buy you know a, a good selection to get going then the show and sale is the place to go Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I really appreciate talking about the North Devon breed. I did your near neighbour we mentioned earlier on, the, the South Devon breed, sadly hadn't come back to me to get the representative on their side. But I hopefully, as we like to, to spread this podcast across the, the general breeds, there, hopefully that's given our listener a good insight into what goes on down in that, uh, in that southwest. Uh, Becky, I know you're still lambing at the moment, so I really appreciate your time at the moment and uh, uh, I better let you get back to it. No, not at all. Thank you for giving the breed the opportunity, Andy. It's very much appreciated. Okay, Becky. Well, hopefully we'll bump into you at uh, at one of the shows and sales through the summer. Great to speak to you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.